Let us stand together for the reading of Scripture. We are reading from Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 10. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus." It is for the word of God that we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Start with why. It is very important to me to be a part of this sermon series. I'm grateful to be here today to be a part of this congregation. And I'm grateful that we are asking this question as we have come back from the restrictions of pandemic. At La Sierra, we have been doing church here for so long that we could simply just plug and play. But I am glad to be a part of a leadership team here that is willing to take this step and ask the question, why? Why are we doing this? Why are we here? Why return to this sanctuary after all this time away? Why do we continue to exist? Before we settle down into the rest of this year discussing what we are doing and what we will be doing and how we are doing it, before that, we are attempting to, together, through this sermon series, to ask ourselves, why? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? We've had quite a few sermons in this series already, and I'm going to quote some sentences from the sermons that have come before. These are some of the uh, sentences that Pastor Chris has shared with us in this series so far. The why has not changed. We can say it dozens of ways. Loving God, loving people is the most simple response as to why we're here. However, most of us know what we do and how we do it, but we give much less thought to why. I'm quoting from Pastor Chris here. We work from the outside in. We know what we do. This applies to most areas in our our lives. The outside layers are full of details and logistics and data and language. But the inner circle is where meaning and purpose and life exist. The inner circle where we attend to feelings and loyalty and the reason why we get out of bed in the morning, the reasons why we long to be in our sanctuary. Pastor Chris told us 
that coming to church is what we do. But why do we do it? When we work from the inside out, it's a dramatically different experience. Dramatically different results come of that. It will act as a filter for every decision that we make. And here are a few sentences that have brought me a lot of inspiration and have, me have been so meaningful to me as I've been listening to the sermons this series. This is from Pastor Chris. The hope of this series is to use the post-pandemic intersection with intention. What is the church community we want to create by design and not by default, on purpose and not just because? What will we value and what will we prioritize? I'm so grateful to be part of a congregation who's willing to ask these questions. And we've been looking through the book of Acts together, chapter by chapter, in this series. So today, we will be looking at Acts chapter 9. And I'm going to start reading from verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now, the book of Acts has already introduced us to Saul in the story of Stephen, when Stephen was murdered for his beliefs. And Saul was standing there giving his approval and supporting that action. Both Stephen and Saul knew that something was changing in the religious atmosphere of that time. And as I've looked through some of the commentaries in preparation for this sermon, the commentaries were saying uh, something like this. Stephen seemed to be arguing that the new order has come. The new has come, therefore the old must go. But Saul's point was the exact opposite. No, the old must stay, therefore the new must go. It was incompatible. For Saul, the root of his seal, zeal was the tradi tradition of, his, of the fathers and mothers of the Israelite nation. And the idea of a crucified Messiah was an impossibility. And it seemed to be that Stephen was talking about that the temple was no longer necessary. For these reasons, Saul could not be in favor of these new changes. We find ourselves in a similar place where we are standing today, between the old and the new. Do we rehash the old? Do we bring in the new? And of course, the third option of trying to hold on to a little bit of the old and making a little bit of room for the new, the old cake and eating it method. There's also a fourth option. Maybe the old foretold the new, and it is time to honor the old by embracing the new. Obviously, it's going to come down to a matter of viewpoint, perspective, discernment. It's a matter of sight. Sight brings us back to verse 2, Acts chapter 9, verse 2. Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
but get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. From this moment in the story, what more could Saul say or do? Nothing. There is no way to respond when one's own self-assurance has been so completely broken in this way. It was not merely a multitude of mistaken messianic missionaries that he was persecuting. The risen Lord Jesus Christ identified himself with these suffering disciples. One of these disciples living in Damascus was Ananias. Now, the story of Ananias is a story within a story which itself bears more study, but we're going to have to fast forward through it for today. Ananias wasn't sure he wanted to help Saul. So in verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Saul, is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now the commentaries talk about this added notion of suffering because we always want to uh, enjoy and respect people who have had a conversion or a change of life. We like it when people bring their lives to Christ and they accept the gospel message and they want to be a part of the church. But the commentaries are saying that it really shows the level of commitment that someone has when they willingly accept persecution or suffering for the sake of their beliefs. In nothing is Saul's conversion more clearly illustrated than in his transformation from the persecutor to the persecuted. Verse 17. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, the commentaries point out this added notion here. Not only is Ananias coming to help, Paul, to help Saul regain his sight, but he has a dual purpose, to help Saul receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the book of Acts has been talking about the Holy Spirit throughout the story so far, and we've been looking at it in the different chapters that we've been studying throughout this series. Most recently, we saw the Ethiopian eunuch who was talking to Philip be filled with this Holy Spirit as he was baptized. We have the story here of Saul being uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. We have multiple experiences throughout the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit filling the lives, coming to control the lives and lead the lives of the believers. A believer in the book of Acts always shows evidence of the Spirit's presence in their lives. But Acts shows us that there is no normative evidence of that presence. There isn't just one way that the Holy Spirit shows up. There isn't just one way in which the believers receive the Holy Spirit. And later on, as we study in the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 13 will emphasize that the primary evidence of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is through love. That's the number one evidence that the Spirit is in your life. 
So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what was the result? Verse 18. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. So maybe the story here in Acts is telling us what it looks like to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Maybe being filled with the Spirit is like scales falling from our eyes so that we can see and discern the Spirit that has always been there, that, ha that has always been here with us. We simply have not been aware of it. We need the sight, the recovery of our sight. Verse 19, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? One of the scholars that Pastor Chris has been using throughout this series is named Willie James Jennings. And I'm going to paraphrase some of the things that he said about this part of the story. Jennings says that Paul, or Saul, uh, he later becomes Paul, but in this story his name is Saul. He is suffering from the, uh, the delusion that your own authority confirms your argument Your argument justifies your actions, and your actions are reinforced because, again, you had the authority. This vicious cycle of being in charge, you think that because you're in charge, everything that you believe is appropriate and right, therefore your actions are okay, and since you have the authority to perform those actions, you continue doing it, even if you are persecuting people, killing people, hating others. And Jennings also points out that for Ananias, God has to remind Ananias that God is seeing Saul in a different way. For Ananias, Saul is a killer. But God sees us differently. God sees sinners differently. And the question for the disciples is, can we see with God? Can we see those who are dangerous and difficult in the way that God sees them? And God sees a future for them full of desire and hope. There's also another book, In Search of Paul, that I'm going to quote here. It should be on the screen. That talks to us a little bit about this phenomenon that's happening here when Saul is going through this uh, conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Neither Saul nor Luke, the author of Acts, tells us exactly what precise aspect of Christianity made Saul want to destroy it. What was it? Our best guess, and it can be no more than that, is that Saul persecuted precisely that to which he was later called. He reacted violently to those fellow Jews who claimed that pagans could now be full and equal members of God's people alongside Jews without circumcision for males or purity rules for anyone. In other words, he converted 180 degrees from his former to his latter position. He could have simply stayed a fervent Jew 
and left Christian Jews alone, or converted from Pharisaic Judaism to Christian Judaism, as, for instance, James and the members of the Jerusalem church did. Or Saul could have proclaimed Jesus as Messiah only to his fellow Jews. Instead, he converted not from Judaism to Christianity, of course, but from violent opponent and persecutor of pagan inclusion to nonviolent proponent and persuader of pagan inclusion. That which he persecuted for God was exactly that to which he was called by God. This is one of the most remarkable, life-changing conversion stories that we have in the scriptures. A complete opposite, 180 reversal, all because the question why was asked. Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul was so sure of his position, of his beliefs, of his attitudes, that he was willing to go after people, persecute them, and even put them in jail and put them to death. But when the question was asked, why, it changed his life completely. The Bible commentaries have a few other insights to think about here. Some of the commentaries, some of the scholars say that many attempts have been made to explain Paul's conversion. What happened there? Often we are looking for rationalistic explanations. Some have suggested that there was a thunderstorm outside of Damascus, hence the bright light. Maybe Paul had an epileptic seizure, or he had some kind of psychological blindness as a result of repressed guilt. Others have uh, su suggested that Paul's conversion was a total rational experience. He came to the awareness of the correctness of the Christian views through his study of the scriptures. Others have thought that maybe his experience with Stephen or some of the experience in persecuting the church helped to change his mind. However, all of these attempts to explain what happened to Saul are just speculative because Saul himself and the book of Acts never provides us with an analysis of what happens. It just clearly pictures a radical conversion experience from someone who was so sure about what they were doing for God They asked the question, wait, but why am I doing this? Why am I persecuting this group of people? Why am I persecuting this Lord, this name? And his life is completely changed. So we start again, as we've come back from the pandemic protocols, we've started with the question, why? Why are we doing this? Why are you and I doing what we are doing? The question was asked of Saul, why are you persecuting me? Asking the question why led to a complete transformation. For Luke, the author of Acts, and for Saul, a totally different person emerged from that vision of the risen Lord. And that is what we mean when we use the word conversion. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the book titled The Varieties of Religious Experience. If you've read that book written by William James, then you know why I have to bring it in at this point. Earlier we were quoting from Willie James Jennings. This is a different, different William James. And he wrote a book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. He considered himself a scientist. He was trained as a scientist. 
but he was interested in philosophy and psychology, and he started some, doing some research into religious experience. William James, in his book, offers a unique distinction between what he calls first-hand and second-hand religion. First-hand and second-hand religion. For James, religion originates in specific and intense, intimate moments of experience which are transformative for a first-hand individual person. If you look at the history of religion, even various religions around the world, there seemed to be a very specific moment in time where an individual had an incredible first-hand experience that changed that person's life, and a religion develops from that. Someone who experiences this and then finds a way to appropriately develop an understanding attitude towards the experience that was had. Someone who comes across as authentic in their personal quest for real meaning. This type of person, according to William James, tends to attract disciples and sympathetic followers. Over time, this tends to be passed on through text. People start writing down the story of Moses on the mountain or of you know, the other person who had a vision or the person who had a dream. People start writing it down. It becomes codified. It becomes a code. It becomes a law. Institutions are built to sustain it, to protect it. And here, James points out that the transition from first person to second person religious experience happens. James thinks that as the initial religiously significant experience becomes encapsulated in the externalities of dogmas and doctrines and church institutions, effectively something important becomes lost. And I'm going to quote from James here, from his book. Your, quote, your ordinary religious believer who follows the conventional observances of his country, his or her country, made for him by others, it would profit us little to study this second-hand religious life. We must search, rather, for the original experiences which were the pattern setters to all this mass of suggested feeling and imitated conduct. These experiences we can find only in individuals for whom religion exists, not as a dull habit, but as an acute fever, rather. Such individuals are geniuses in the religious line. And that's where I, I end the quote. Hence, according to James, most people... When they discuss religion, they are essentially talking about obedience to traditional structures, to inherited liturgy, to ritualistic pra practice, the things that everyone is used to doing. This is how we do it. But according to James, he sees this as fundamentally inauthentic. Instead, he asserts that the essence of religion will be found in the firsthand personal transformative experience. That is what motivates the geniuses of religion. And those who are seeking to be authentically religious will need to focus there as well. One of the points that James makes in his book is that being religious is like loving, loving someone. Religion resembles the difference between persons who are capable or incapable of love. If you are not willing to take any risks, then love will most, most, will most likely not come to you or be part of your life. The religious viewpoint makes you receptive to dimensions of reality that will otherwise be hidden, even if it feels risky. 
So James studied in his book many of these experiences, and he is aware that as he studies these, they are highly individual. He does not think that one experience can generalize into all experiences. Instead, each person is dealt with uniquely and interpreted individually. In other words, as we're studying Acts 9 today, we're not studying Acts 9 to say all of us need to have a bright light shine on us, make us blind so that our lives can change. Each person's individual first-person experience with a divine will be unique and interpreted individually if we uh, follow James's pattern of thought here in his book. And why did James define these kinds of experiences as religious? He makes it clear in his book that he is discussing experiences that people themselves think of as religion. So he's not attaching labels to people having dreams or experiencing different things that we cannot explain. It's just when people themselves say, I had a religious experience, he's researching and studying them. Of course, one unintended outcome of this is that anyone can claim to have had a religious experience. So there is some care that uh, is suggested here because this is not just a subjective thing only. I can proclaim that I had a subjective uh, personal experience. I saw a vision. I saw a dream. It must be given objective content. It must have something come and confirm it. Like we later read in the story of Paul, he searches through the scriptures to defend his new viewpoint. He goes to the disciples, to the synagogues, to the churches to try to find a community of believers that can hear what he's saying and confirm his experience. Now, even though William James is discussing experiences that people think of as religious, we can think of a criticism in that he is rendering individualistic and subjective something that by traditional definition has been oriented towards externality and community. For, for tr uh, traditionally, Christianity is more than just one or two people having visions or dreams or conversion experiences. It's a communal experience. However, James continues to emphasize that this is important. The individuality is important. For him, religion historically originates in these certain existential moments of experience which are dramatically transformative for the individual. And so, as James sees these experiences, like we've read today in the book of Acts, where somebody's life is completely changed around, James wants to emphasize to his readers to be open, to remain open to the thought that what appears unquestionably and intellectually correct to us today may become regrettable to us tomorrow. He does not want to close the door hastily on any intellectual possibilities. James takes seriously the issue of individual importance. Philosophers and historians may argue that the individual does not really matter in the grand scale of things. Conversely, James argues that the nuance of studying the individual's personal religious experience in the history of religion is important. And James is interested in the moment of someone's conversion. He's interested in the fact that people speak of experiencing a deep personal conversion. In his research, James sees that different kinds of people will find different kinds of religion to suit their needs. He finds people to be sick souls, and he includes himself here, who, are, who if they are able to find happiness in their adult life, it is most likely because they have suffered terrible sadness, 
paralyzing doubt, and they somehow found a way to triumph over it. His accounts of all these personal religious experiences and conversion stories are about how these people have indeed been through major challenges and very difficult life experiences. James does not want to know only whether people are happy or not. As a psychologist, he needs to know how they came to their happiness. And he believes that this is very insightful also for the study of religion. In my mind, there is a complexity here that I can appreciate in the way that James describes first-hand versus second-hand religion. And I see it here as we read Acts chapter 9. Religion has existed through the centuries because it has teachings that generations after generations continue to find inspiring and meaningful to their daily communal lives. In fact, that's why many of us, that's why most of us are here today. It's not just because an individual had a a special experience of conversion. Many of us have found the stories of the scriptures, the stories of others' conversion experiences, our own individual personal beliefs, motivating, motivating and inspiring us to be a part of the church. And one individual cannot define for the rest of us what religion means and what religion signifies for us. Because religion and our faith is both for the individual, but it is also for the collective community at the same time. Nevertheless, I think there is great value in James's insight and his approach to seeing something objectively remarkable about people who believe that their religious personal experience is absolutely real. It is impossible to deny someone's experience, even if we cannot agree with it. Even if we cannot accept somebody else's experience as proof for the existence of God or proof that we have to do this or that, we can at least still try to explain why someone is so convicted and committed to their conversion. And I think it does correspond to all of us, to all of our lives, to accept and understand that something is lost when our version of religion is a second-hand version of religion, when we ourselves don't have our own reason for why we're here. If you only grow up hearing about the prophets that spoke with God, but you never have such an experience yourself, then your religious sensibilities will be different just purely by category, just by definition. So James clearly shows his preference for experience over concepts. He also does not believe in the idea that you can organize your world in such a way to be resistant to change. Everything does change, and one's view of the world will eventually change. James thinks that life is not deterministic. Unexpected things happen, and then all of a sudden there's a new possibility of life that develops. James sees the same potentiality in the life of the intellect and in the life of the religious person. He wants us to realize that surprising things will happen. Our minds will change. He does not give us the right path to follow, but he asks the same questions that we are still asking today. Why are we doing the things that we're doing? And it is the same questions that the author of Acts is asking. As we have gone through this series, start with the why, we've already looked at the story of Philip, who unexpectedly 
baptized and saw the Spirit fill the life of an Ethiopian Gentile. We have the story today of Acts chapter 9 where Saul is converted, complete opposite of where his life was headed, and Jesus tells him, I'm going to send you to preach this message to the Gentiles. And later, when we keep reading in Acts, we'll see that the next story is the story of Peter, who has this fantastic vision of animals coming down in a blanket. And the interpretation that Peter himself and the others receive from that vision is that God is asking his people to welcome the Gentiles. The Gentiles being the word that was used during those times to describe the heathen, the pagan, the outsiders, the ones that you were not supposed to be spending any time with, the people who were not going to be a part of your fellowship. When the question, why are we doing what we're doing, is asked in the book of Acts, the story of Philip, the story of Saul's conversion, the story of Peter, keeps pointing to the same thing. God is doing an absolutely new thing. It's so new that it completely changes Saul's life. He was ready to persecute and kill because he was so sure that we could not have a certain group of people be a part of God's chosen group. And his life changes immediately because of asking the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? So what if the thing you thought was the thing is not the most important thing? What if the person you thought could never be the person is the right person? What if the programs you thought were surely it are not the programs at all? Start with why. To whom are we committed? To what are we converted? This is the question of why we are doing this. Are you doing this from a personal conviction and relation to Jesus as your teacher? Are we committed to country, culture, or customs? What is our why? Comfort, cohort, or complacency? There is a communal why to what we are doing here, but there is also a personal, intimate, and individual why to what you are doing sitting here today. Start with the question why. Thinking about it now, for myself, I think I'm still here because I believe that Adventism still has the possibility to positively influence our society through many of our distinctive distribution, uh, contributions to the community. I see that we have a lot to contribute to our community, especially in terms of service to our neighbors in need, in terms of healthy living, ecological caretaking, Sabbath rest, generosity. Adventists are good at chaplaincy and counseling. We have a great educational system. We have a great healthcare system. We have excellent development and relief agencies around the world. I want to continue to participate in bringing attention to this kind of Adventism. And for my own ministry, it has grown and developed over time. My why is that I really, truly believe in community service. Both my personal theology and my philosophy of ministry continue to grow and go along this path. I'm often intentionally self-reflective about what I believe and why I believe it. I look at Jesus and I see that Jesus was poor. Jesus was homeless. And he spent time with the poor. He was friends with known sinners and Gentiles. 
And so my why comes from that. I want to seek to serve the neglected and the marginalized. I want to go out of my way to connect with new and uncomfortable partners in dialogue. I want to pray every day that God use me, that God uses us as models of peacemaking and nonviolence as we concern ourselves with the spiritual needs, the service needs, and the social justice needs in our community that perpetuate rampant poverty and breed crime and hostility. When I see that someone is seeking after God, I believe that something is happening in their lives, and I want to be there. I want to be there to help recognize what God is doing in their lives. That is my why. I want to make it my priority to search the scriptures together with anyone who is interested. I want to keep my arms open wide. I hope that our church can continue to keep our arms open wide for those people that the Holy Spirit may bring for us to love. And why do I believe what I believe? I think that if I believe the truth, if what we believe here is the truth, then truth will be its own evidence. I'm not afraid of the big questions. I believe that God will draw those whom God wants to be members of this congregation. And so my dream, my desire for the why of what we're doing here is that our church will not be just something, merely something that a person attends on the weekend. Instead, it will be something that we are. Our church will be defined by lifestyle, just like a sports fan lives a life indicative of their chosen lifestyle, we too as Christians will evidence our common love for God's kingdom through our everyday lifestyle decisions. We will want to congregate together to worship. We will want to engage in acts of love and mercy to those who are forgotten. We will exercise forgiveness and reconciliation with one another. We will seek out ways to love the loveless, to remember the forgotten, and to celebrate the, rejection, the rejected. There's a lot of things that we can do. There's a lot of things that we are doing. But we're asking the question, why? Because if we ask the question, why, maybe some things will change. Maybe we will change as individuals. Maybe our congregation will change. If we ask the question, why? If we look to Jesus, if we look to Acts, if we look to the stories that inspires in the scriptures, maybe we will come together and seek to live intentionally in service to each other and to our neighbors and in a spirit of worship at all times and not only on Sabbaths. My prayer for us, my prayer for this series is for discernment, that God will open our eyes, that the scales will fall from our eyes, whatever that means, whatever that looks like. My hope is that we will continue to be open to whatever God wants for the ministry of this congregation. I am hoping that we will continue to find ways to help people find their own reasons for their beliefs and not be afraid of the big unknown questions and mysteries of life. There are so many possibilities of what we could do as a congregation. There are so many things that we could do on Sabbaths throughout the week. However, if we ask the question why, maybe you will find the same reasons that I'm finding as I search the scriptures. We will continue to want to be engaged in the service of our fellow human beings. We will continue to be committed 
to partnering with local community-based organizations in order to promote unity amidst diversity, provide basic necessities for those who need it most, and actively seek the well-being of our neighbors. Asking the question why can change your life. Amen.